Well, you might remember last year when I first came here to be your pastor, the first sermon series I preached was Marks of a Great Disciple or a Great Church. And uh, it was a take on the name of the church. We're named after St. Mark. And so this year, as we began this, my second year with you, we've been making a journey through the Gospel of Mark. It's a remarkable gospel. It's believed to be the oldest gospel. It's believed that both Matthew and Luke used it as a reference when they were setting out to write their own account of Jesus' life and to fill in some of the blanks that maybe Mark had left out of his gospel. You might remember that Mark wrote his gospel in the midst of great persecution and he was trying to quickly get a word out to the early followers of Jesus, saying that regardless of what you're enduring, the persecution that you're experiencing, I want you to know that God can be trusted. And and that's the essence of Mark's Gospel. And so today we are nearing the end of this journey through the Gospel of Mark. And today's text is Mark chapter 14, verse 12 through 26. Um, it's Passover in the text, and maybe you remember something about Passover. If not, I'll briefly give you a history of it. You might remember that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, were enslaved to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They basically made the bricks for Pharaoh's transportation system. It was an awful job. They hated it, and they cried out to God because of it, asking God to come and to free them from this slavery to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. And so God finally listened to them and sent Moses and Aaron to go and to speak to Pharaoh. And and they were supposed to go to Pharaoh and say, let God's people go. But when they went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And Pharaoh was unwilling to let the Hebrew people go. And so God then began to send a series of plagues, all in the hopes of softening Pharaoh's heart, all in the hopes that Pharaoh would indeed let God's people go But plague after plague after plague happened, and Pharaoh's heart remained hard. And so finally God decided to do one last thing. God was going to send an angel of death and take the firstborn of everything in Egypt. And hopefully this would get Pharaoh's attention. But God didn't want this tragedy to befall the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, and so he said to them, if you will take a lamb and you will slaughter that lamb and you will take some blood from that lamb and put it on the door frame of your home, when the angel of death comes, the angel of death will see that blood on your homes and the angel of death will pass over that house and move over to the next house. And so this is what became known as Passover. And it happened just like God said. God sent an angel of death, and the angel of death visited and took the firstborn of every home in Egypt, except for the homes that had the blood smeared on the door frames of the house. And when the angel saw that, that home, the angel would pass over. Well, it got Pharaoh's attention. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron to him and he said, you take these Israelites and you get out of here. You go quickly. And, and they had to leave so fast that we're told that the bread dough didn't, that they had what didn't even have a chance to rise. 
And so Passover is also known as the festival of unleavened bread because so quickly they left that the bread didn't have a chance to rise. Well, after God had liberated the Hebrew people from the Egyptian slavery, God called them all together and said, listen, I I want for every year to remember this event, I want it to be a celebration of your liberation. And, And I want you to do lots of different things, but two of the things that I want you to do is I want you to have some bread, and I want you to have some wine, and I want you to use those common things in your everyday life to remind you of how I liberated you from bondage. And so I want you to have that unleavened bread there because your bread didn't even have chance to rise so quickly that were you liberated from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And, and, and I want you to have the wine there because I want that wine to be symbolic of the blood that was on the doorframe of the home and how that the angel knew to pass over you and move on to the next house. So this blood actually saved your life. Uh, save people's lives in your family. And so that's what I want you to do on Passover, to celebrate the way I liberate. And so that's what they were supposed to be doing in our text this morning. The disciples are a little worried about have the preparations been made for this Passover meal. And so they go to Jesus and they ask him about it. And Jesus sends two of those disciples on into the city and says, I want you to look for a man carrying a water jug. Now, in Jesus' day, it was the women who largely fetched the water. And so it was women who were often, most often seen carrying the water jugs. And so to see a man with a water jug would have been unusual, but it would also have been an obvious sign that Jesus knew exactly what was going on, that Jesus was, had already planned out this event, this celebration of Passover. And so they were supposed to find that man with a water jug, and then they were supposed to follow him to his home. And there they would find an upper room. Now, an upper room uh, typically was just a room on top of the dwelling place where the family lived. Oftentimes, it would have a staircase on the outside so that you could access that upper room. It was oftentimes used as a guest room, sometimes a store room. Uh, Sometimes it was just a place where people would gather together and learn from one another or a place that you might go and seek some peace and quiet. But it was this upper room where they were to have the Passover meal. And we're told that that evening Jesus and his disciples show up at this Passover meal. And after they'd all taken their place at the table, Jesus began the meal and he surprised them because this was supposed to be a celebration of liberation. It was supposed to be this really happy and festive occasion And instead, in our passage today, Jesus began in a not-so-festive way. And he said, one of you will betray me. And it would have been better if you hadn't even been born. What he's saying is that one of his 12 closest friends, one of his 12 closest friends, followers was in on trying to destroy him and all of the disciples began to say well it's not me 
It's, it's not me. I, I find it so interesting in our passage this morning that the disciples are more worried about promoting and proving their own innocence than they are the fact that Jesus has just said, one of my very closest disciples is about to betray me. They didn't know who it was. It's as if the disciples don't know the true motives and nature of each other's hearts. But we're told that Jesus knew that someone there was going to betray him. Now, Jesus didn't really give any great hints. We know from reading Mark's gospel who the betrayer is because Mark has already identified that person. But in this context, no one seems to know who it is that's going to betray Jesus. And the only hint that Jesus gives us really isn't a good hint at all. He just says, well, the one who will end up dipping the bread in the cup with me, that's the one who will be able to, who will betray me. Well, maybe after this point, we might have hoped that the party would get better. You know, maybe he started it off on the somber note, but then he's going to move into the celebration of liberation that they were expecting, but he didn't. Instead, he took that same bread, the bread he was supposed to lift up and say, hey, this bread is supposed to remind you of how quickly I liberated you from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but instead he lifted up that bread And he broke it in two. And he said, this is my body. Now, who knows exactly what he meant, but there are several possible meanings behind why Jesus uh, did that. Maybe Jesus did that because he said, in the same way that this bread is now broken before you, very soon my body will be broken before you. Maybe what he was saying is that in the same way, breaking of this bread benefits all of you because now all of you have a piece of it and all of you can eat it. In the same way, when my body is broken on the cross, that too will benefit each one of you because it has been broken and shared with everyone. Maybe what Jesus is saying here is that in the same way my body is about to be broken and I am about to suffer on your behalf, so I invite you, my closest followers, my disciples, to suffer with me. Jesus has already told them that if anyone wants to follow me, they must uh, pick up the cross and deny themselves. And follow me into the pathway that leads to suffering. Maybe that's what Jesus was talking about here. The thing that I find most interesting about this text is that Jesus uses a very simple and a very common food item to draw this point to their attention. He uses bread. And I wonder if Jesus chose to use bread to break and say, this is my body, because Jesus somehow knew that for the rest of time, people like you and me were going to almost always have a piece of bread with every meal. 
I wonder if it was Jesus' way of inviting us every time we sit down at the table and every time we enjoy a piece of bread to remember the way that Jesus broke Himself so that we might benefit, so that we might be fed physically, and so that we might uh, enjoy life abundantly because of His willingness to be broken. I don't mean to be flippant here, but I'm glad He didn't choose turkey and dressing to say, this is my body. Because we wouldn't have turkey and dressing every day. We wouldn't have a constant reminder of how great was God's love for us. But as it stands now, almost every single day, you and I will pick up a piece of bread where we have an opportunity to remember how great Christ's love was for each of us. Then we're told that Jesus picked up the cup. And instead of saying, this is the blood of the covenant, the the blood that saved you when it was symbolic, that saved you, that was on the the door frames of the home, but instead He said, this is My blood. And this is a new covenant. What I'm about to do is a new kind of liberation. In the same way that I liberated you from bondage to Pharaoh years ago, now what I'm doing will liberate you from the bondage of sin. And then Jesus said, in what I think may be the most overlooked part of this passage, I will never drink the fruit of the vine again until the new kingdom of God is ushered in. When Jesus comes back, and when Jesus creates a new heaven and a new earth, then Jesus will celebrate again. And why that's important is that the meal that we are about to partake of today is not just a remembrance of what has been done previously, but it is an opportunity and an invitation to anticipate what Christ will do in the future. In the same way that He liberated them from bondage to slavery, He has liberated us from the bondage of sin. And He will come again And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And all the former things will pass away. And once again, we will celebrate, have a celebration of liberation. In that spirit, then, let us approach this table.